Welcome to Talking Underwater, One Water, One Podcast. I am Katie Johns, Editor-in-Chief of Stormwater Solutions and Water Quality Products. In this episode, I am joined by Eric Hines, a professor at Tufts University, where we discuss why the ocean is so important to combating climate change, blue tech innovations, and why collaboration is key. So without further ado, here is the interview. Hello, everyone. Today, I am joined by Eric Hines, a professor at Tufts University, and we will be discussing why the ocean is so important to combating climate change. So, Eric, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me, Katie. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, of course. So to get us started, can you tell us a little bit about what you do in your role as professor over at the university and what your involvement is? Yes, I direct the Offshore Wind Graduate Program at Tufts University. This is a new program that we've created specifically to focus on the infrastructure, the supply chain, and the electricity transmission that's going to be necessary to build out the U.S. offshore wind industry. And so we're very interested in the systems, the social, technical, political systems that come together to create this fabric of this energy transition that we all have to accomplish together. Absolutely. And I understand that you are involved with Blue Tech's Innovation Day coming up. Can you talk about what that is and what the involvement is there? Yes. So we're very excited about the Blue Tech Innovation Day coming up. I think it brings together a number of initiatives uh, that have been running for quite some time that are now sort of meeting each other and getting braided together in this nice way. And so I think if you think about Blue Tech, the way I think of it is any technology that's relevant uh, to the ocean, uh, to exploring the ocean, to characterizing the ocean resource, uh, to fisheries, to protecting marine mammals, uh, to creating energy. This is all part of the blue tech economy. And the ocean is really a world unto itself and, and a largely unexplored part of the earth. And so there is a lot of work that can be done uh, with advanced technologies to improve the way that we understand and engage the ocean. It also includes aquaculture, Uh, It includes the future of all sorts of uh, parts of the economy that are going to be more and more reliant on our oceans. Yeah, absolutely. And so I'm wondering if you can expand a little bit, because we do talk a lot about technological innovation in the water industry, and and obviously this ties into that. So I'm wondering if you can tell us how new technologies and blue tech innovation are playing into this fight against climate change. Sure. One example would be our characterization of what we call the atmospheric boundary layer, the boundary of air sort of from the surface of the water up to about 200 meters above the surface. And our ability to model that uh, really needs to be improved. And in order to be able to do that, we have to have measurements that range all the way from the surface of the water up to 200 meters. We have, we're able to measure that using a technology called LIDAR, floating LIDAR. Uh, It's like radar, but using light. And uh, But we don't have uh, structures in place to benchmark uh, those results. And so to be able to improve our models, which are important not only to understanding the offshore wind resource, but also important to climate science in general, we're going to need to advance that uh, through a series of measurements. If you go below the water, uh, the question is, for instance, we have North Atlantic right whales, an endangered species. There's only about 350 of those uh, mammals left and uh, they migrate up and down the East Coast, and they're right through a lot of these areas where the offshore wind farms are being constructed. And so there's an enormous amount of uh, concern and activity related to figuring out how to protect them. Uh, Right now, 
one of the ways that uh, people determine whether there are right whales in the area is that you have uh, mammal watchers, you know, on board the ships, uh, keeping an eye out for the whales. And that's it's a very important aspect of the work. At the same time, though, uh, we have the technologies that are developing to be able to monitor uh, the to monitor the whales under the water, uh, to use underwater soundscapes, and to be able to locate them more precisely. Those systems are, uh, we know how to make those work on a scientific level and at a prototype mm -hmm. stage, but to actually implement them as a systems level, that's an aspect of blue tech that's really emerging and growing. Uh, you could imagine other areas where people need to characterize what's below the surface of, uh, mm -hmm. you know, below the surface of the soil for the foundations. How do you scan that economically? How do you get as much information as possible? It's very expensive to take borings out in the ocean or to be following other kinds of marine mammals and fisheries and so forth and to understand their movements and how they are going to coexist uh, with the ocean. You know, one more aspect I would say would be imagine we're going to be putting all of these hardscapes in the water. We know from the Gulf of Mexico and from the North Sea, they almost immediately start growing artificial reefs. So this question about, well, if we're gonna make artificial reefs and we've had so many square thousands of square miles of reefs um, bleach and die on us throughout the world, if we're gonna create these new artificial reefs, how do we do that in the best possible way? What materials should we be using? How do mm -hmm. we design them to actually promote biodiversity and to help fisheries thrive and, and strengthen our ocean ecosystems? So that's another aspect of blue tech. Absolutely, and you touched on you know, funding, which we've always heard is a huge, um, hurdle in the water industry to kind of get most any kind of project done. And then you talked about how challenging it is to kind of find these uh, data benchmarks that you need. So can you expand on other hurdles you're seeing when it comes to innovation for climate change and the ocean impact on that? Uh, sure. Well, I guess I'd go back to this idea that one of the needs for benchmark data sets, mm -hmm. uh, one of the initiatives that we'll be talking about on the Blue Tech Innovation Day, a panel that I'll be hosting, is uh, a panel with several of my colleagues from the Woodsell Oceanographic Institution from the Marine Biological Lab. And the panel is really in two parts. One of them is about what we call the ocean testbed. And so this ocean research station that the community has come together and said, we really need to be able to create this so that we can create the benchmark data sets uh, against which to measure new innovations. And then the other part of it is the nature inclusive design. And so for instance, let's say, uh, Katie, that you and I invented some new technology uh, mm -hmm. We had this great thing. We were going to bring it to market. But the question is, is how do you know that it's bankable, insurable? Uh, how do you know that it can be uh, can pass regulations? And how did you vet that? Well, that has to be vetted against existing gold standard benchmark data sets. Sure. And so to create a, a public, a publicly accessible catalog of these data sets and a process by which new technologies are vetted, that's going to be key to bringing these new technologies into the ocean industry. Yeah, absolutely. And can you talk about funding as a hurdle? Can you expand on that a little bit? And, and do events such as this Blue Tech Innovation Day help that in any way? So when you say funding as a hurdle, do you mean research funding? Do you mean private sector venture capital? What 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 are you thinking of when you're thinking of funding? Well, I kind of mean all of it, but for this purpose, let's talk about research funding. <laughs> research funding. Okay. <laughs> well, I think there's been an enormous amount of research funding that's actually uh, already really, you know, been put into the works over the last several years. Uh, there's a lot of really wonderful advances that have been made in terms of uh, testing these floating LIDARs that I was talking about. Mm -hmm. uh, the Oceanographic Institution has done amazing work testing those against the 
uh, Martha's Vineyard Coastal Observatory. There's an air-sea interaction tower there two miles south of Martha's Vineyard. That tower is about 26 meters tall. As I mentioned, you know, we need a tower that's about 200 meters tall. That's, I say that lightly, but that's, you know, nowhere in the world is there something like that. It's, it's a brand new kind of a research asset. And so I think there's been a lot of work on the environment. I think the Department of Energy uh, has really been a leader in terms of funding work on the environment, even though that may not have always been the way that uh, the DOE thought about uh, renewable energy technologies. Mm -hmm. The idea that the offshore wind is embedded in the ocean, which is our natural environment and sort of the synergies and the, the coexistence of all of this uh, technology and structure in the environment. You know, we've seen a lot of funding from the DOE. One of the things that we haven't seen enough of yet that we're advocates for uh, is large scale funding for infrastructure where entire communities can come together. And so we're talking about projects at the 50, 100, $150 million level. Okay. We imagine there would be multiple stakeholders, including offshore wind developers, states, federal agencies. And so there are structures in place and communities in place to discuss these things. But typically these projects, you know, they have a pretty long on-ramp. And so I would say some of these discussions have been going on for quite a number of years now and are really beginning to mature. So I wouldn't be surprised if in the coming years, you know, we start to see uh, the community coming together as a larger community. So I'm talking about the ocean community, the offshore wind community, the blue tech community, and the atmospheric science community. Mm -hmm. These are not communities who've typically talked to each other about all these right. things, but they're all converging geographically in the same location right now. Absolutely. And it sounds like all of those work together, right? Which is kind of the point of this podcast, you know, so we have magazines that cover stormwater, wastewater, drinking water, but the point of our podcast is to say, hey, these all work together. And it sounds like it's similar in what you're trying to accomplish, you know, by combining all those communities together. I think that's right. If you go back to 2016, 2017, we would go down to Washington, D.C. and advocate uh, for this idea of an ocean test bed. And it was kind of funny at the time, you know, we would say, do you know, you know, to the wind energy uh, people in the wind mm -hmm. energy, community, do you know there's already $250 million of federal research assets surrounding mm -hmm. the wind energy areas? And they'd be like, no, we didn't know that. And then we would say to the research community, do you know that there are the biggest wind energy areas in the United States right there in the middle of all these federal assets? No, we <laughs> didn't know that either. You know, and so we would kind of laugh and say, well, you know, this is this is easy. We just have to we have to bring these communities together. Of course, it's not easy. Uh, right. It takes time. Uh, but I would say that the Woodsell Oceanographic Institution has just uh, shown incredible leadership in terms of being able to think about convening these communities and uh, and pull them together. And, and we've been excited to, to partner in that regard, you know, and I think at the same time, uh, Sea Ahead, which is, um, has done enormous work in terms of incubating uh, blue, the blue tech industry and helping to launch new startups. Uh, they're also a partner. And, and it was around that same time that Sea Ahead was just getting started uh, down in Providence and sort of seeing this idea on the blue economy and all these things. And so, what what we've seen at Tufts is sort of as we're talking about these need for these major, major research assets, and you get this idea of the startup culture in the ocean, the two really need each other, but mm -hmm. they're not communities that automatically talk to each other. And so I think the Blue Tech Innovation Day is very consistent with our traditions so far in this process of just trying to bring together the various communities that we encounter on a daily basis, uh, but haven't necessarily built all the bridges uh, between them that we need at this point. So it's exciting work. Yeah, absolutely. And kind of circling back to what probably should have been my very first question for, to you to lay down the, the framework for this interview, but 
Can you talk about why the ocean is so essential to fighting climate change? Oh, wow. Well, <laughs> there are probably, there are many people better qualified than me to answer that question, but I'll, I'll give you my best, uh, I'll, I'll yeah. give you my best stab at it. Number one, there is enough, even if you just go a couple miles, a few miles off the coastline, there is enough offshore wind energy in the world to power the entire world, the entire world, 11 times over in 2040. Wow. said the Energe International Energy Agency in their 2019 offshore wind outlook. So from the one hand, the ocean is this incredible resource, right? I mm -hmm. think that's number one. Number two, and the atmospheric scientists will, and, and the ocean scientists will answer this much better than I can. <laughs> but my understanding is, is that in terms of a carbon sink, you know, the ocean is this incredible flywheel uh, on the uh, on the planet's ability to sort of moderate temperature and carbon, and so the question about how is what's the ocean's role in all of this, uh, in terms of the ocean itself, in terms of the life forms in the ocean, how does that work, and how can the ocean actually be used uh, to you know more deliberately to help us meet the climate crisis? I know that that's a major area of interest and concern. I think that as you think about the future of fisheries, you know, there's a lot mm -hmm. of existential uh, worries uh, that the fisheries naturally have related to the warming oceans, to ocean acidification, to overfishing and fishing stocks and the question. And so now offshore wind on top of that seems like one more thing that everybody has to worry about. But I think the way that we see it is the question is, is well, given all of these uh, threats in the first place uh, to the fisheries and to the food system and to people's livelihoods, how do we think about this together in a way that we actually design the system to revive fishing stocks, to increase them, to increase biodiversity? How do we bring the ocean users together? You know, and I think that's sort of another, another area. Uh, if you go up into the really high north, uh, mm -hmm. up near Greenland, Alaska, the wind energy resource is higher than anywhere else in the world. You know, these are the zones that are kind of purple on the map of the International mm -hmm. Energy Agency. They have a 65% capacity factor. That means if I have a 15 megawatt turbine, 65% of the time it's producing 15 megawatts or more. And you could imagine really large scale wind farms in this part of the world. Mm -hmm. They're too far away from the grid to run cables and connect them, but they could be producing the green hydrogen or the green ammonia of the future that then could be shipped all over the world. And so I think the ocean as a, as a resource, uh, you know, from which uh, we can, bring things like energy and food that really benefit society, but then the ocean as a natural resource that needs to be cared for and preserved and respected and better understood. Those two things, you know, and then everybody knows the ocean makes up approximately 70% or more right. of the Earth's surface, right? So mm -hmm. it's a big deal. And I think that it's gonna play a much larger role uh, as we come into the energy transition. Yeah, in people's absolutely. consciousness, I guess I mean, you know, a much larger role in people's consciousness. Yeah, for sure. And, I, and that kind of leads, you were, you were talking earlier, and what I took away from the beginning of your answer was kind of that collaboration is key to this, right, is, is to combating climate change and bringing all these industries together, whether it's, you know, offshore wind, food, energy, whatever it be, it's, it's going to be a team effort. <laughs> collaboration is key. And I think sometimes people may not have an appetite to collaborate just because it feels too complicated. Mm -hmm. uh, but in this particular uh, space, zooming out and allowing these other things in that you or I might not normally think about in some ways makes things simpler. If you zoom out far enough, you can really see where the collaboration needs to happen. And to be able to zoom out that far 
understand that mindset and then to be able to zoom back in and say, okay, where are the touch points and why do we need each other? You know, the collaboration is not just an ideal, it's a necessity. And quite frankly, it's mutually beneficial to all the users of the ocean. Um, but we're not going to be greater than the sum of our parts if we can't figure out how to work together. Right. Absolutely. Um, well, Eric, my work almost at the end of my questions. The last thing I was going to ask if there are any examples or summaries of recent research you've come across, um, you know, regarding blue tech in the ocean that you wanted to share with us. Well, I think that there was a seminal white paper on the ocean testbed idea that was written in 2018. Uh, and once we're not recording, I can I can put that in the chat uh, <laughs> so you can have that. That was under uh, done under the work of Power US, the Partnership for Offshore Wind Energy uh, in the US. And, and a lot of those ideas have been updated in the meantime, but this kind of idea that we have all of these large scale research facilities. We uh, I got involved in this because I designed the one for wind turbine blades just north of okay. Boston, the Wind Technology Testing Center. That was 2008 to 2011. And then uh, Clemson University built a big drivetrain testing facility down in South Carolina and Charleston. But where's our ocean testing facility? Mm -hmm. you know, where where are the places where we where we uh, work on these other aspects of the of the energy system? So uh, that's a major that's a major item. I would say that our panelists who are going to be at the conference, you know, if if you if you took a compendium of all the things that they've published over the years, you'd have books and books. And so I would, uh, what I'd recommend that you do is maybe reach out through Bill Shaw or Franny organizing the conference, you know, for ask panelists to, to provide maybe two or three of their key papers. Sure. Uh, I think that'd be a really interesting thing. Um, uh, and it'd be nice to pull all that together as kind of a representative, you know, body mm -hmm. of work. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Eric, you have answered all my questions. Are there any final thoughts you want to share before I let you go today? I would just like to reinforce this idea that we have to work together mm -hmm. in order to make this work. And particularly in the Northeast, this is an interesting convergence of a lot of historical, you know, historic scale events. So if you think about it, think about the North Sea and think about the East Coast. The North Sea is about is bigger in many ways than the Eastern Seaboard. One doesn't think that until you look at it, you know, but if you scroll Google Earth and you actually see it to scale, the North Sea is big. It's also shallow, it has a sandy bottom, and it has an existing oil and gas industry. So it's no wonder why the development, the industrial development in the North Sea is decades ahead of what's on the East Coast. You come to the East Coast and you start with the Gulf of Maine and you go to Cape Cod and you go all the way down to Cape Hatteras and what do you have? We have fishing and recreation and beach communities. We have this incredible coastal resource that millions of people enjoy. You know, it means a lot to people and people grow up on the beach and we spend our time, we do not have heavy industry on our coastlines. And so this question about, well, now that we need to supply our power off of our coastlines in this way, how do we do this in a way that preserves the um, everything that's meaningful to us about our coastlines, but then also creates the jobs and allows us to revive our cities and to meet the climate crisis? And I think in the early days of the offshore wind industry, I'm sure most of your listeners are familiar with this, the big thing was, is we needed to move the turbines far enough offshore so mm -hmm. that people couldn't see them. And I just think that you, I understand all of the uh, conflicts, you know, that we encounter in various ways and all the tensions as sort of a result of, you know, doing something new in this part of the world. And so I think it's just helpful, uh, you know, for people, it's, a, it's really a good opportunity for people to step back and think about, well, how does our federal government work? How do our states mm -hmm. work? How do we share the ocean? What do we do? We have regions and states, we have these borders, and yet we have to cross them. 
And so it's kind of an exciting time to be a citizen, I think, in this part of the world and to yeah. be thinking about what is our democracy and what do we want and how do we want to run it? And I, and I think that uh, this conversation on the ocean, this is a space we all share, right? And it, it mm -hmm. offers... Uh, it offers a good space for people to think about that and talk about that together. So sorry for the long answer, but you, you know, you got me all, all into it. So <laughs> No, that was good. I think, I think it's a perfect sentiment uh, to, to end the interview on. So thank you so much for taking the time today and for sharing all of your insights with us. I, I really appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Thank you, Katie. Yeah. Have a great rest of your day. You too. Thank you so much eric for taking the time to talk with me and for sharing all of those insights i really appreciated it and learned a lot and i'm sure our audience will too before we wrap up today's episode i have a little bit of housekeeping to share with all of you first up for water quality products the nominations for young pros and industry icon are still open you can make your nominations at www.wqpmag.com faces hyphen industry for Wastewater Digest, you can watch all the latest videos at youtube.com slash at Wastewater Digest. And while you're there, please hit the subscribe button. Also, be sure to check out the latest editions of the magazine at wwdmag.com slash magazine. For Waterworld, you can check out the latest issues of the magazine at waterworld.com slash magazine to subscribe and read the digital edition today. And finally, for Stormwater Solutions, later this year, we are hosting StormCon in Dallas, Texas from August 29th to the 31st. Exclusive to this podcast is a 10% registration discount. Visit bit.ly slash stormconreg2023 and use the code ONEWATER10, all caps, to get 10% off your registration for the show. With that, don't forget to like, subscribe, share on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, and Spotify. You can also reach us at talkingunderwater at endeavorb2b.com. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at TUW Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Mm -hmm.